0: Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have such a good episode for you as I got to sit down with Robbie Gallaty. Robbie is the lead pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church, a multi-campus church in the greater Nashville, Tennessee area. He has a passion for making disciples who make disciples and is the founder of Replicate Ministries. He hosts Making Disciples, a weekly podcast, and he has authored several books, including his most recent Here and Now, Thriving in the Kingdom of Heaven Today. On this week's episode, Robbie and I discuss some of the important implications that the kingdom of God has on our day-to-day ministries. Robbie shares a powerful point that we see in the Last Supper that you may have never noticed, super awesome. We talk about practical approaches to helping your church embrace the daily kingdom life, including how you can invite those who've been in church for a long time to step into a deeper discipling experience. This is a must listen for your entire ministry team. So please, won't you join me in my conversation with Robbie Gallaty. Robbie, welcome back to the Church Leaders Podcast, brother. Good to have you with us again. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be back. Now, I'm, I'm super excited for our conversation today, Robbie, because we're going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite topics, one that I've probably preached on, written about, taught about more than any other, and that is the kingdom of God. And um, I know that's very dear to your heart. You've um, you not only do you preach a lot on that, obviously, and and teach on that, but you've written several books, including your latest, "Here and Now." And um, I, I'd like for us maybe to begin the conversation with something that uh, I know for me, over my years in pastoral ministry, I found to be a bit of a consistent challenge. And in talking with pastors across the country, it seems to be somewhat uh, of a of a universal challenge. And that is how we help the people in our churches come to a better understanding of the kingdom of God and its implications on our present day lives, as opposed to something that is kind of out there somewhere, you know, something only to be maybe experienced after we die, because it seems that so many people seem to have this view of the kingdom life or eternal life that really doesn't begin until after our physical life ends. And many people kind of cherish those views. It's, it's almost emotional for them. So Robbie, help us um, as pastors, as ministry leaders, how do we begin to encourage a, a, a more biblical understanding of what uh, the kingdom of God is all about for us here and now?
1: Yeah, well, I think this is, as you said, not only is it exciting for me and and exciting for you, but I think this is the fundamental concept that uh, is essential for us, not only for the future, as a lot of us think about heaven, but I think it's essential for us in our Christian life today. Why? Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven more than any other doctrine, any other concept in his ministry. I mean, that is the most talked about concept. For example, he, he starts his ministry, Mark chapter 1, after John's put into prison, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? right. He finishes this whole concept uh, or, or this whole teaching about his ministry and the discipleship of his guys. Acts chapter 1, the very first thing it says he does with them after the resurrection, Acts 1. For 40 days, he's teaching to them about what? The kingdom of God. The very question they ask. You know, they got one question left. Jesus is about to go, all right, boys, any question before I go? Think about it. Acts 1, the one question they ask. All right, uh, Jesus, are you going to set up the kingdom now, or are we going to have to wait for that? So they're asking it. Mm -hmm. The very last thing on the lips of Paul in the book of Acts, if you go look at it, it says Paul stayed with them two years, proclaiming. The kingdom of God. Now, here's the question for those listening. If the kingdom message was the central message for Jesus and the kingdom message was the central message for the apostle Paul, it was the thriving question in the the question on the minds of the apostles when was the last time you heard a sermon on the kingdom of heaven? Hmm. Or better, when was the last time we had a conversation? about the kingdom of heaven. Now, I I get it. I mean, I'm in the boat, too. I mean, prior to doing research for this book and preaching on this at my church, I was thinking in my own life, when was the last time I preached on the kingdom of heaven? And I really was convicted. And I started to do some research. And here's what I realized. If I were to ask you this question, Jason, this is very telling. But if I were to ask you this question, where are you thinking here and now or there and then when I ask the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? Most people, if you're like many Christians, most people are going to say there and then, right? right it's right. Place we go to when we die, we're going to be ejected from this world that's degrading and falling apart, and we're going to be sent into the spiritual abyss of the Disney world in heaven, <laughs> uh, you know, this this palace in, in, in the sky that we're going to go to one day. And so, and, and all those things are great and true. I mean, we all want to see Jesus and be in heaven one day. Right. But for Jesus, and here's where the rubber meets the road, 90% of the time, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, not as a place that was there and then. For Jesus, 90% of the time, the kingdom of heaven was here and now. And if that's the case, could it be, watch this, could it be that we have spent most of our time as pastors, church leaders, Christians, teaching our people what they're saved from, and we have neglected to train them and equip them to show them what they're saved for. Mm. See, because if heaven's only some place I go to after I die, then whatever I do here on earth is optional, right? Like I'm right. going to heaven. Who, who cares if I go to church? Who cares if I serve on the mission field? Who cares if I give? And with that model of just trying to get people to, to be saved and say, aha, at the right place so we can pat you on the back and baptize you next week and tell you to suck it up and see you uh, at church the following Sunday. If that's all the Christian life is, watch this spiritual disciplines, mm. living in the Christian life through obedience becomes recommended, but not required activities. Yeah. And, I think that's where we are today in the church. I think you would agree with
0: me. Yeah, 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 for sure, Robbie. Mean, that's, that's good. And I, I love that take because one of the things that people that know you well know that you are um, – you don't just focus on conversion, although you celebrate when people come to Christ, but, but your heartbeat is about – um, making disciples, you know, like people growing in their faith, people digging in, people having that ongoing life transformation, right? So, so I love that because uh, in 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 your book you talk about this idea, and I, I, you share an experience. I think it was that you had on a mission trip, and and one of the missionaries uh, talked about you were asking how they, how do you know like your ministry is effective, right? And the 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 response. That she gave was, you know, it's not that, that, like, they don't judge their effectiveness on how many people we save because God is the one who saves. That mm-hmm. their job is to help people really take their their next step on their journey. It's it's, it's actually focused on the discipling, um, not mm-hmm. the conversion, right? And so right. talk to us through that because I, I think a, a lot of times, and, and even, um, and we can even go here, even a lot of our denominations, what they're asking us to report on, the metrics they're using, uh, tend to lean more towards this uh, conversion experience versus discipling, disciple-making. So talk to us a bit about how we kind of shift that focus into what you said, this idea of the kingdom here and now, and, and what that means for our lives as far as spiritual formation here and today. So help us through that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, let me make it practical for, for those listening in, in ministry. And, you know, we're, we're we're trying to live this out. So we could talk theology and philosophy, but what does this look like practically? Good. If If the Christian life was only about trying to get you out of earth into heaven, then why in the world would Jesus leave us here after conversion? I mean, think about this. I mean, Jesus can. He could do anything. So if a person comes to faith in Christ— then they're ejected immediately like spiritual bottle rockets into heaven, right? Immediately (laughs) like, like there's another one. Wow. Another guy gets saved. And, and the, and the reality is if, if it was all about just making a decision and trusting in Christ as savior of our life, why did Jesus wait for 30 years before he started his ministry? Why did he invest three years in a group of guys during his ministry before he goes to the cross? Because I mean, think about it. At 12 years old, Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he was here. He could have gone in the temple, Luke 2, to the religious leaders, claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the king of Israel. They would have crucified him for blasphemy. He still would have died. He would have rose from the dead. He still would have ascended to, the he- to heaven. He still would be the savior of the world. But he didn't do that. Because here's what I want people to understand. Jesus' life was just as important as Jesus' death because he knew that the mission was going to be carried on through the advancement of the lives lived by the apostles on mission for him. And so you got to realize Jesus's life was just as important as his death. And I think for us, so here's the big shift. How do we shift our minds from thinking there and then and, and, and move from there to here and now. And if you think about it, it's an upstream swim. I mean, all of our, or a lot of our Christian songs about heaven or some of the hymns from years ago are all about there and then. I right. mean, one of my favorite songs is I Can Only Imagine. Well, who doesn't only imagine, right? We yeah. want to imagine it's like when we see Jesus face to face, you know, and and we're forever with him. But think about some of the hymns and, and, and songs of the past. Beulah Land, I'll Fly Away, yeah. When the ro- Rolls Call Up Yonder, you know, This World's Not My Home, Mansion on a Hill. I mean, all these songs are about the future. Even our creeds, are about the future. I mean, you think about even the Apostles' Creed. I mean, we love it, and we, we celebrate it, but even the Apostles' Creed, AD 390, when they create the Apostles' Creed, there is no line about Jesus's life. In fact, it says Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary, and the very next line, think about this, is suffered under Pontius Pilate. So even the creeds don't have anything about Jesus' life. Now, I'm not saying they're wrong, and don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> but what I'm saying is we're predisposed uh, in our culture to think about tomorrow. Let, let, me, bring it, let me bring it close to home. Uh, I, did a, I did a kind of a case study thinking about what this looks like in our ministries, and I talked about student ministry, for example. And whether you're a pastor of a church or you're a student minister, we're all, and whether you have kids, we're all affected or we all benefit from student ministry think about most student ministries, right? My two boys, Rig and Ryder, I have two sons, they're 10 and eight. Um, And both of them have professed faith in Christ, one of them at eight, one of them at seven. And both of them, I'm trying to, by God's grace, intentionally disciple them now. But let's say they grow up, they're in the church, they're around the things of God, they hear the Bible, they know the Lord. If they go to a typical student ministry in most churches, here's what they're going to enter. At the age of sixth grade or the grade of six, they're going to enter into the student ministry. They're going to be invited to the crescendo of every student ministry, which is summer camp. You would agree. I mean, that's the crescendo. You bring all your lost friends. Let's get them saved. Let's take them to camp. And what normally happens in many churches is the student pastor hires the hired gun evangelist to come in and preach five sermons to the students, now or never, turn or burn, today's the day of salvation, give your life to Jesus. Nothing wrong with that, but that's five sermons. If your son or daughter, Jason, is in that environment, like mine will be, Mm -hmm. and the only messages they're hearing are salvation messages about trying to get you out of earth into heaven, what they're gonna hear by the time they graduate in 12th grade, are a bunch of messages for people in the room, not them. And think about that. I'm not saying it's bad to hear the gospel. Consider it continuously. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is they're going to sit there every year, year after year, and hear evangelistic sermons that have not equipped them to share their faith, not equip them to overcome sin and temptation, not equip them to get into the Word, until the Word gets into them, not equip them to show them the most overlooked spiritual discipline of the Christian life, which is Scripture memory. And we wonder, don't miss this, we wonder why why our kids are getting out of high school and 68%, according to LifeWay research just recently, 68% of high school kids are going to go to college and walk away from the church. Why? Here's why. We haven't spent any time showing them how to live in the kingdom today, and they don't know why they believe what they believe. So when they go to college and someone says, hey, uh, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Or do you you have an answer for is is it six literal days or six million years? Or do you believe we came here from apes or evolved from a colliding of planets? Most of the kids in most student ministries are going to say this. Jesus loves me this no for the <laughs> That's all they know. That's all they know. So what I'm getting at here, the premise of the book is, yes, we live on mission in the kingdom today, and there's this wonderful blessing and abundant, satisfied life that Jesus promised. But the real issue I'm getting at is, could it be that we have been so bent on getting out of earth to heaven that we have missed Jesus's main agenda? which is try to trying to bring heaven to earth through man today which
0: mm-hmm. i think it is. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. So let's dig in a little more Robbie practically speaking as a pastor, you know, overseeing your your church and the people God's entrusted to you in in the ministry, you know, your entire staff, your entire team there in the Nashville area. What are some practical things that that you're doing or that any church regardless of its size can begin kind of stepping into to begin, kind of changing this narrative a bit, and helping get um, grounded in a bit more about what it means to live the kingdom here and now. What are some practical things you guys are doing, or some ideas that we can kind of, uh, you know, grab a hold of? Okay, yeah, a couple couple things.
1: Number one is we, and you mentioned this earlier. I am passionate about making disciples, and obviously, the reason I'm passionate is because I'm the product of disciple-making. I mean, I I had the benefit. I was radically saved in 2002 uh, from a life of addiction, drugs and alcohol. I got in a bad car accident in 1999 and then got addicted to pharmaceutical drugs and then it led to street drugs and eventually a $200 a day heroin and cocaine addiction and uh, lost everything, robbed my own family for $15,000, lived homeless and without gas, electricity and water and then finally, after two rehab treatments in a stint of losing everything, I remembered the gospel that was preached to me in college by a friend of mine. And, and I thought, you know what? I've tried everything else. I might as well try the Lord. And I get radically saved. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed to repent. And for the next eight months, Jason, and I just wandered. Like I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't know how to memorize scripture. I didn't know how to pray. A lot of people listening would say that was me. Even today, still hadn't had the benefit of being discipled. And I'm at church. I was praying for about two months. I'm at church one Sunday in New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, a guy named David Platt is uh, a church member. And many may know him from Radical. And he was the president of the IMB. But he was a a seminary student uh, at the time. And David comes across church one Sunday. And he had heard about me wanting to be discipled and invested in. He said, hey, man, do you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture, and pray? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? And for the next two years, every week, uh, twice a week. uh, It started when I was uh, out of seminary for five months, and then I went to seminary and we met. And so I tell people I'm the product of discipleship. And so I think the answer to answer the question of why we have people who are Christians but are not experiencing this abundant Christian Life that Jesus promised as citizens of a kingdom, the reason they're missing that is because they have been brought up in a non-discipleship gospel church. I mean, in a sense, I mean, I think we've preached half the gospel. As I said earlier, we've told people that if you say this prayer and you believe in your heart and you repeat after me, you can be saved. And what you do from the moment of salvation to the return of Christ or your death, whatever comes first, is optional for you. And so what we do at Long Hollow, the church I pastor, we do something called obedience-based discipleship. Okay. Big difference than just discipleship. And, you know, I realized discipleship can be kind of a junk drawer term because uh, it's kind of a hot topic now. I'm sure you've talked about this in podcasts with people. I mean a lot of people now, wouldn't you agree, are talking about discipleship? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, we, we, more so, wouldn't you agree, more so now than years before yes, I mean, when yes. I didn't hear it. I mean, even now, we're, and I'm excited by this, the problem with, with, with the excitement is I'm also cautious because I realize that in the church world, we have a temptation uh, and a tendency to hijack terms and wrap labels on old packages and try to repackage something and sell it differently as it already always was, and that doesn't work. And so what I mean is we can say we're doing discipleship, but it's not necessarily discipleship. Like Sunday school, Mm -hmm. small groups in and of themselves are good, but it's not necessarily all of the discipleship process of a person's life. Preaching on Sunday is a good portion of the discipling process. I'd even say it's the centerpiece of discipleship, It's not the only piece, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we do is obedience-based discipleship. I launched this many years ago, just looking at the model of Jesus, right? Like Jesus ministered to the crowd, but he also ministered to the 12. And out of the 12, Jesus had what I believe a D group, a discipleship group of three to five people. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, three to four, Uh, it was him and James, John, and Peter. And so We know this D group Jesus had, and he invested in these guys for, you know, 12 to 18 months intentionally. And so what we implement at Long Hollow is these D groups. And so we have these groups of three to five, Jason. They meet throughout the week, once a week. The group meets for 12 to 18 months. And here's what they meet for. They meet for high accountability. And it's not just accountability like, hey, man, did you read your Bible this week? That's important. But it's more of, hey, who did you share the gospel with this week? Mm. And the second question, here's a great question to ask people. Number two is, did you even try? Uh, We also ask, how are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Another question we ask is this. Did you do anything this week that would disqualify you or hinder your walk with God? And so we're living high intentionality, high, high intentionality, high accountability. But we also meet for the purpose. Watch this of replication. So we know that the discipleship process is not complete until the mentee becomes a mentor or the player becomes a coach. Right. And so we're constantly meeting with these guys, guys with guys, girls with girls, obviously, for the purpose of reproducing their life. Because here's what we realized that. And you know this. When you're being invested in by someone else, man, what a blessing that is. But it fades in comparison to when you're now leading a group of men or you're a woman leading a group of women and now you are leading the group and leading the journey. There's right. no comparison, right? right? right. I mean, we, when we achieve great things for God, that's great. But when we see someone I mean, those listening would agree. When you see someone who you've invested in go on and do great things for God, yeah. man, there's no greater joy. So that's one of the practical ways we do this. Now, what is a very tangible way? What is a biblical way we do this? I realize that when Jesus, and this was a this was a shift in my own mind, I realized when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, okay, now some people are gonna say, I don't know about that, but follow me for a moment. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't just give it as some lofty way of living that no one could aspire to, and he was the only one that could do it, so why even try? Because that's kind of what I thought in seminary. Like, okay, Jesus gives this these guardrails for living and these guideposts to ascribe to, but nobody can do that. Only Jesus can, so let's just trust in him. He was righteous. We're not, and we'll just let him figure that out, and we're going to try to do our best, right? Yeah. But I don't think that's why Jesus gave— the Sermon on the Mount. I think Jesus gave the Sermon. Now now granted, is it grace-driven? Yes. Uh, Can we do it only through his power? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I think Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount as a lifestyle to shoot for, empowered and infused by grace given by him. Mm. And so I think that is a big shift from what I've always been taught of and Jesus did that. You don't have to. So just try your best to. This is the way Jesus expected for Christians to ethically live. Like this is the ethic of Christianity.
0: That's so solid. And and as you're saying that, as you're talking about what that looks like, inviting people into that um, through you know D groups and those things that you're doing at at Long Hollow Baptist. Um, one of the questions that came to mind, and I'm sure there are plenty of other pastors and mystery leaders who who we might be thinking through the same thing and it kind of harkens back to some of the things you said in the very beginning of our conversation and that is um okay so we have our churches uh you know we have people god's entrusted to us uh people that have been in church for for many of us as pastors there are people in our churches that have been in church longer than we've been alive right you know i mean so and they they have this uh, again this kind of emotional view of of the kingdom of God and of heaven and of the afterlife, they feel like they are, you know, right, right in the midst of it all. But how do you help them? Kind of help convince them that there is um, something deeper in regard to discipleship, because, like you said, a lot of them feel like. Yeah, I go to Sunday school, you know what I mean? Or I'm part of a Bible study or, you know, and they've been mm-hmm. doing that year after year after year after year after year, and they feel mm-hmm. like that's, that's it. Yeah. How, so how do you help them without you know, offending them like, Hey, yeah. there's, there's something deeper, you know, um, h- how do you help them make that transition into something deeper?
1: Yeah. Or losing your job. I'm right, sure. right, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 like turning everything over and losing your job. I mean, that's what you're getting at. Yeah. How do we do that? Okay. This is a great question because I think, uh, this is where we all are because I, and here's, here's what I mean by discipleship. D- don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we, we need to get people in discipleship groups and that's the end. Like that is not the end. Discipleship and D groups are a means to an end, and the end is to be conformed to the image of Christ, right? Yeah. To live as kingdom citizens in the kingdom, experiencing the rule and reign of the King. And so, here, here's a concept in America we don't understand much, but it's it's worth talking. And I really kind of tease this out in the book, but it's the concept of England. Okay, so if you live in a monarchy as opposed to a democracy, which we live in, in a monarchy in England, you have a queen or a king, right? And so they rule the country, they rule the province, they rule the region. People who live in that country are not called citizens, they're called subjects, okay? Mm -hmm. And so a, and it's a word we don't use much in America, so we don't really know it much, but in the UK they know this, you're a subject to the crown, right? And so what happens is you are born and raised in the community, or in the country, and you have the option as a citizen to abide by the rules and the regulations and follow the plans of the kingdom. And if you do, there are blessings that come along with that. For example, you get the protection of the province, the, the crown. You get the, uh, you get the joy of having health care and, and, uh, and, and schools and, and, and education opportunities. So you have all those blessings. But you do have the option to be a citizen of the community and go live outside of the kingdom. Like you can move to another country, you can move to another part of the world, but you can't expect to have the parameters or the blessings uh, or the protection of the kingdom. The same thing goes in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, watch this we, once we come to faith in Christ and we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, what we're in a sense doing, watch this, this is where this kingdom mindset comes in. What we're doing is we're saying we're no longer the King on the throne of our own heart. We have a new king. There's a new sheriff in town, right? He's leading the charge. He's in control. I'm not. And his name is Jesus. That's why, and this is a long discussion. I don't think you can be a Christian and trust Jesus as savior, but not obey him as Lord,
0: mm.
1: you know, to, to follow Jesus as King and Lord and savior. It's all, it's all part of the pack. It's a package deal. Right. Okay. So you're following Jesus as King, Lord, and savior. You can't compartmentalize the attributes of Jesus. Okay. it's just all part of the deal. So if we as Christians, okay, born into the kingdom, been given access into this this royalty, we're joint heirs with Jesus, adopted into the family of God, our master leader a king, then we have all the benefits and the blessings of the kingdom. Like I tell people, when you enter the kingdom, you have access to the bank account of heaven. I'll give you a story. When I got married to Candy, my wife, I was only uh, I was only set free at that point from from drugs and alcohol for two years. OK. And so I had debt and I had I was paying my parents back for money I took from them and I had school bills and I didn't have a lot to my name. So it really wasn't much on my resume that I brought to the relationship. But Candy, my wife. She had been working since she was 16, Jason. She had a retirement plan. She had a bank account, hallelujah, right? <laughs> I mean, she, had, she was working. I mean, she had, not only just she had stunning good looks, but she had a passion for the Lord and she had a bank account. The day we got married, okay, when I said I do, and when she said I do, and Brother Don, who was there, her pastor, performed the wedding, at that moment, her bank account became mine. So I was able to now write checks and withdraw money from that account. Now I didn't go do that right away because we were married and we had the honeymoon and we had other things, you know, we, we, we had, you know, life to build and move and all that. But I had the ability to go and withdraw money from her bank account. Why? Because what her which, which was hers is now mine. Watch this. When you came to faith in Christ, when I came to faith in Christ, at that moment, when we were born again, the Bible talks about it as a marriage. We were united with Christ, and at that moment, we have access to all the riches of heaven and glory. Now, do we make withdrawals from that account? Many of us don't, because we settle for a status quo and the average kind of life that's not abundant and victorious, and so many of us never tap in with our spiritual ATM card into the bank account of heaven, but it's available for us, okay? And so what, what I make this argument in the book is, is that to experience the blessings and the benefit of the kingdom, it means that you as a subject to King Jesus— Subject yourself to the rules and the regulations of the kingdom. Okay. Meaning, Jesus gave us a, a way to live, He gave us an ethic to live by. Now, if we live by these rules, we're going to be blessed. If we, and, and I'm not talking about blessed financially or monetarily, but I'm just talking about the blessing of the presence of God and right. the power of God and the abundance of walking with God. But if you don't abide by these rules and regulations, you're going to live outside of the kingdom in a sense, the choice is yours. So here's what I tell people. How do people ask me, how do I know if I'm in the kingdom of heaven? Here's the question. Is Jesus ruling and reigning over your life? And it's way more to answer your question earlier. It's way more than just getting people to follow through with Christian activities, Mm -hmm. right? Because the Pharisees were the best at this. I mean, they had the right clothing, they had the long robes, and they knew the right prayers, and they showed up at the right services, but they had the wrong motive. One of the greatest examples, I unpack this as well in the book, is Judas. I compare and contrast two men who start very differently and who end at opposite paths. Or So they start at opposite extremes, and in a sense, they change places. And the two people I compare and contrast are Zacchaeus, Luke 19, and Judas. Now, if you think about Zacchaeus, this is a man who was a scoundrel. I mean, this is the most hated man of all of Israel. Nobody likes this guy. He's a turncoat. He's a little man. So he probably got made fun of, but he's wealthy. So people hate him. And he sees Jesus. Jesus says, I must go to your house. He has a play on words, and he says, he says, salvation has come to your house, which is because he's there, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeshua, Yeshua, salvation is in your house because I'm here. And then he says, this man's truly a son of Abraham. I've come to seek and save the lost. And he's quoting Ezekiel there, making a connection how God's coming to find the lost. But here's what he says. When Zacchaeus sees Jesus, he stands up and he says if i've done anything wrong i'm going to make it right okay so he has true repentance it's a picture that he's living in the kingdom he's not doing things to earn his way in the kingdom all right so don't hear that i mean we don't do good works to be in the kingdom right but the fact that he is about to do good works for god or is doing good works for god shows that he's in the kingdom so so here's the thing we don't work to earn our salvation but we will work from our salvation. Jesus said, you could tell a tree by the fruit it bears. Right. And so the line I use is, if you want to know the root of one's heart, look at the fruit of their life. Or another way to say it is, the fruit of our lives reveal the root of our heart. Now, you can't always tell someone's true conversion experience just by works alone and judas is the is is the prime example i mean think of the life of judas this is a man who was with jesus his entire ministry like a lot of church members i mean they they show up at church you know church members they look the part they have the christian t-shirt they may even serve some of them are demon deacons or cranky choir members, right? <laughs> we got those people. We got those people in our church, right? They show up. But you're thinking, there's just something not right about these folks. They they don't have a heart for God. They're not fall. They don't have any love. Okay, here's Judas. Think about this case study. Judas is with Jesus to the end. At the end of Jesus's life, he takes the boys to the Last Supper. He washes everyone's feet, including Judas, which is really mind-blowing to us. The man who's going to betray him He washes his feet, right? Then at the end of it, Jesus is reclining at the table. John's next to him. Judas is to the right, I believe. And Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me. Remember this? Mm -hmm. Matthew 26. This is so mind-blowing. Think about this. One of you guys is going to betray me. And all the disciples start going around. The text says, they say, is it I, Lord? That's the key word. Is it I, Lord? Matthew's like, is it I, Lord? You know, John, it it can't be I. Is it I, Lord? Peter, is it I? James, is it I? They're all going around. Is it I? Is it I, Lord? It shows me up to this point that Judas had been so good at pulling the rug over their eyes with a religious facade that even the men who led the faith we believe in, the, the apostles, couldn't snuff out the devil. hmm John 6, Jesus says, well, did I choose you, 12, and one of you guys is the devil? So Jesus knows this, but because you got to understand, Jason, if if you and I, because if we were there, we're thinking, as soon as Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me, we all look at each other and say, oh, we know who that is. That's old, rotten, dirty Judas. We know he's been <laughs> siphoning the traveling treasury. We know that, but they don't do this. Here's what's amazing. When Jesus says, one of you guys is going to turn on me, every one of the guys indicts themselves. But then it says Judas speaks up. If you go back and look, Matthew 26, mind-blowing when I read this the first time. Judas speaks up, and here's the line in the Bible that he says. He says, is it I, rabbi? Wow. And what that shows us is this, that you can have all the religious activity in the world and still be on the throne of your own heart. See, here's the problem with Judas. Judas, and you probably say, well, that's old Judas. Well, follow me. This is the man who heard every sermon Jesus preached. He saw people rise from the dead. He saw men who were blind who now see. He saw the lame walk. He saw the deaf hear. Jesus saw women get healed. I mean, this is the man who... Judas was even sent out two by two with the 12, two by two with the 70. And now Judas comes back, and he's still calling Jesus teacher or rabbi. You know what it shows me? That there can be people in our churches who are second or third generation Christians. They could have parents who have been in church all their life, their dad could be a deacon, the mom could play piano. They could be at every VBS and Bible study since they were a kid, but the problem is, they're still on the throne of their own heart. I mean, they may even like Jesus. Judas probably shed a tear when he heard Jesus preach, but when push came to shove, Judas was still calling the shots. And the warning for us here is this, there can be people who look like they're in the kingdom, but they're still the king of their own heart because they're calling their own shots, and still they so they are far from God. And it's a great warning to us because Jesus said, listen, many people on that day are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I did all this religious activity for you. I cast out demons. I prophesied in your name. I healed the sick. And Jesus said, I'm going to look at them. You remember these words? Mm. And say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Here's the thing I want us to think about. It's not, the question is not, do you know Jesus? Like from Matthew 7 21, we can get this. He's not saying, do you know me? The question is, does Jesus know you? Hmm. And here's what I tell people. I mean, imagine on that day, right? Like, hey, Jesus, you don't remember me? It's Joe. I mean, golly, went on that mission trip. You don't remember the money I gave in the offering that time? You remember me, Joe? And Jesus is going to turn around and say, do I know you? Mm. <laughs> do, do I know? Hey, it's Susan. You remember Susan? Golly, I served in the children's ministry, and I, I helped with the worship team. Golly, I mean, I went on that one time over. You don't remember me, Jesus, Susan? Do we know each other? Mm. And, and what a sobering thing to think about yeah. that there are going to be people who have all the ornaments of, of the kingdom citizenship, all the outward appearances of being kingdom citizens. And because they have relinquished the throne of their heart to King Jesus, Jesus said on that day, what a sobering day, I'm going to say to them, Depart from me. I didn't even know who you were. So the question is for our people is to get them to see, not only do you know Jesus, which is, I mean, a lot of people know Jesus.
0: All right.
1: What we try to get people to see is, does Jesus know you? Meaning, are you fostering this relationship with Jesus, which simply takes time to build? That's what the discipleship group offers so well. It gets people in a natural rhythm of meeting once a week and texting throughout the week, of spending time in the word and accountable to memorize the word and live the word and share the word and what discipleship does is it puts them in this as as greg ogden says so well this hot house of transformation this incubator this uh th- this garden of growth where you plant yourself deep in the word of god and god begins to grow you uh, along the journey
0: brother that's so good so good i love that robbie um, hey, listen, brother. We're we're gonna have links um, for all of you listening. Links in the show notes to Robbie's newest book, here and now. And I love the subtitle, brother. Thriving in the kingdom of heaven today. Yeah. Um, so we'll have links to that. But Robbie, if if people want to connect with you a little bit more, maybe learn more even about um, your D groups and how you kind of approach that there at your local church. What would be the best way for them to kind of learn a little bit more or connect?
1: Yeah. Well, uh my passion obviously is discipleship, so I have a podcast uh that we do weekly called Making Disciples with Robbie Gallaty. You can just search it online. Uh and every week it's a 20-minute podcast. I have a co-host named Chris Swain and we just talk practical discipleship principles like uh I think our last podcast was the allure of the mega church and why that only works 1% of the time and so we just talk about all things practical and what does a discipleship group look like what does my quiet time with the lord look like how do you structure a staff to make disciples uh and then our website um is replicate.org uh so we have a ministry website where we train pastors and leaders and just help them make disciples. Because I realize in the church, there's a lot of people who want to make disciples, but wanting and knowing are two different things. And and I realize this about just church folk. When our church members don't know what to do, they simply don't do anything at all. Right. And so they want to grow closer to the Lord. They want to hear the voice of God. They simply don't know what to do. And so we're not the experts on discipleship, but I tell people we've paid a lot of dumb tax, so that <laughs> we don't have to. So yeah, Replicate.org.
0: That's, that's good. And we'll have links both to your podcast and to, um, to Replicate.org in the show notes as well, so people can check that out. But Brother Man, certainly appreciate you. Love having you on. Um, you have such a heart for, um, for the kingdom, but you have a heart for the church. That's what I love about you. you uh, pastors, ministry leaders, uh, brothers, sisters, your colleagues um, who are doing ministry, you, you always um, – you're su- such an encouragement to so many of us who are in ministry. So thank you for making the time to be with us, brother.
1: Man, thanks for having me. I always are encouraged by this podcast and what you guys
0: are doing as well as church leaders. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. God bless you, my friend. Thank you.